are you a Supreme Court justice with some difficult legal issues before you? Have you been asked some very challenging questions lately that you just don't know the answer to? Well, lucky for you, Stanford Law School is here to help with some continuing legal education for Supreme Court justices in need. Go to stanfordlawschool.com forward slash justicecle and enter moderated content for your special discount. Stanford Law School, Justice CLE. Perfect. <laughs> Does that work? Do you have any, any amendments? <laughs> it's a little too serious. People might actually do it. Welcome to Moderated Content's weekly news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Doek, and Alex Stamos. Alex, I, I realized I signed off our last episode with See You Next Week, um, which is a terrible sign off in multiple respects, because first of all, this is audio. Uh, nobody sees anyone. And second of all, we did have a break, uh, an unusual break for the week. You enjoyed your trip away? I did. Yeah, I took my family to Japan, which... As always, uh, you go to a place like Japan or almost every, any developed country outside the United States, and it makes you incredibly angry at the fact that we can't build it yeah. right, in the United <laughs> States. Like, my kids, you know, on the Shinkansen, you ride the Caltrain here in the Bay Area and your fillings are rattling out at 60 miles per hour. And then you can have like your coffee with like a, a tiny little Jurassic Park tremor uh, on the top of it at, at 200 miles per hour uh, while looking at Mount Fuji. Oh, it was a great experience. I mean, mostly people were incredibly welcoming. There, it is interesting. You know, Japan is still, you know, one of the countries in which outsiders are not always welcome. So it was a good experience. My kids faced a little bit of uh, discrimination based upon their background in a couple of cases. It was actually an interesting lesson at multiple levels. Excellent. Well, we are glad to have you back. And there is uh, plenty of news from the fortnight that was. Let's start with Meta's adversarial threat report. It released its uh, report for the fourth quarter of 2022, um, which is its uh, um, every quarterly report. There's some interesting stuff in there. It shows a growing trend, increasingly growing trend. This is not, not new news, but government domestic operations uh, of governments targeting their own citizens with uh, information operations and especially um, you know, showing grassroots support for themselves and targeting the opposition party. One of the things that was amazing about these figures is some uh, what I thought were quite mind-blowing amounts of ad spend. So there was a Bolivian network that Meta took down with over a thousand Facebook accounts, 450 pages, and they spent $1.1 million on ads across Facebook and Instagram, which is uh, qu quite a lot. And yeah. of course, all of these things as well are cross-platform operations. Uh, one of the Serbian operations that Meta took down, which had over 150000 in spending for ads, they found it based on a tip-off from Twitter in 2020. Now, I uh, I don't know. Do we think those tip-offs are still coming through from Elon Musk's Twitter these days? Right. So that's one of the things that's, that's missing from this is usually the Facebook report was in parallel to Twitter releasing data sets via their research coalition for us and other people to analyze as well as their own kind of announcements. And so this is the first Facebook quarterly adversarial threat report that has no Twitter equivalent. And I do think that is the big thing here is it is pretty clear that there is nobody left at Twitter to do this work. Facebook no longer has a partner. And so we're going to continue to see these kinds of releases from Facebook, but without Twitter doing the work, which is going to be bad for Twitter because what's going to happen is Facebook's going to release, here are a bunch of accounts, here's a bunch of data, and groups like ours are going to be able to take the output from Facebook and then map it to Twitter. It used to be that conversation happened between Facebook and Twitter well before the reports came out. They would collaborate. They'd give tips to each other, including data that's not available in public for like phone numbers and, and email addresses and such indicators, IP addresses, indicators on the back end. Uh, and now it's going to be independent groups finding all of the stuff 
on Twitter based upon Facebook's tips. And so I think this is a situation that demonstrates how you know, getting rid of transparency by Twitter is not going to benefit them in the long run because this stuff's just going to be discovered, but it's going to be discovered in a way that they no longer have control over the narrative. Yeah. Rolling Stone had a story this week, actually, about how Twitter has just stopped transparency reporting altogether, not just these uh, information operations takedowns, but um, including, you know, government requests reporting. So, you know, some of the oldest transparency reports in the field in the area are about government requests to platforms for like data uh, yeah. requests or takedown requests. Um, and, you know, those are an important tool, not just in holding platforms accountable for what they're doing, but in holding governments accountable for the kinds of pressure that they're putting on platforms. And one former Twitter staffer says, uh, that shit went out the window right after Elon came in. So um, I don't know if we'll need to get Brian to beep that or if uh, we need we can get an explicit warning on our, uh, on our podcast episode. But yeah, basically no more transparency reporting across the board. Do you think that was an, an an actual decision, or do you think you just fired the people that uh, do so that? The, I, I yeah, it's, it's, it's basically the latter. It, you know, it was. I think the the story highlights that you know nobody there knows how to do these anymore, and they're fairly time consuming. One of the people says, "I'm not aware of any people left at Twitter who could produce these transparency reports anymore." So even if they wanted to, they wouldn't know how to do it. Which is interesting because, you know, one of the big conspiracy theories that is incorrect is that the FBI paid Twitter to censor stuff, right? And as you and I know, the it is true that the Department of Justice pays tech companies, but it is based upon ECBA and SCA, which requires the government to pay for the costs of search warrants and wiretaps and such. This is actually something that started with the phone companies, not with the tech companies. And without those transparency reports, we now don't see any of the reason why this money is changing hands. So like, it is a direct example of how Twitter is going the opposite of the direction of kind of the thrust of the Twitter files and is, you know, ruining stepping on its own narrative. Yeah, and we also don't see how often they push back because, you know, obviously the the, the, the platforms shouldn't or don't just say yes every single time a government actor uh, requests data or right. for them to take things down. And that's what these uh, reports show. It shows, you know, which which governments want the most information or, or uh, data and um, which, which ones, you know, give the least substance in their requests that the platforms push back the most. And uh, we're not getting any of that information. So for all we know, Twitter could just be rolling over with these requests now and we would have no idea. Yep. It's really so I just want to underline this. These are two areas in which Twitter has now no transparency on coordinated and authentic behavior by governments and governments asking for data. Twitter is now advertising governments can manipulate us and nobody will figure it out. That that is the bottom line here. Well, you don't think the government manipulation on platforms has, has just stopped magically uh, since since Musk took over? <laughs> No, no, he stopped and then he just, you know, he, he you yeah. know. It, this is the kind of thing that like if I wrote that tweet and it was on the other side, he'd just respond with curious yeah, or I'm looking right. into it. But I'm not, maybe I should register cat turd three and uh, point this out and, and see if I can get him to engage. Yeah, that is what we're reduced to. Um, anything else from the adversarial threat report that stood out to you at all that's worth highlighting? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, like you said, it's this trend that we continue to see, and we've seen a bunch of SIO work, is that domestic is really the focus, right? I, I think a number of governments have found that there's not a lot of ROI on manipulating other folks. On You know, Russia and China are really the only countries, and probably the United States still, although generally in more subtle ways uh, than what we uncovered before, that, you know, for most of these countries, the real value in the ROI is local. Like you said, the, the amount of money being spent on advertising, a million dollars in advertising in Bolivia, that gets you a lot, right? So that's that's really interesting because, you know, the, the, uh, the CPMs there on those 
users are going to be quite low. So yeah, I, I do think it's interesting to see these countries spending all this money to manipulate the local population. Okay. Uh, okay. So on the topic of transparency then, while Twitter threatens to turn off its API, although it hasn't done so yet, I don't believe, TikTok is providing a new one for academic researchers. So it has announced that it will launch an a- API for academic researchers to study the platform. And there's a group of researchers at Stanford Internet Observatory that have released an analysis of it and its limitation. Some of the most significant, I thought, was that the For You page will still be opaque to researchers. Most of the data that's uh, released will be based on, you know, searches that you can run on the platform, but it won't show you how TikTok's recommendations work, which is like the key question that people have about TikTok. And uh, it also won't have information on violative content that has been removed. And then uh, Joe Back Coleman at Tech Policy Press also had uh, pointed out a number of uh, important things in the terms and conditions of being a, a researcher under this that includes some pretty wild things like you can only keep data for 15 days and that you then bestow TikTok with a worldwide free, non-exclusive and perpetual products that you uh, produce so that they can republish it. So there's a lot of things to be questioned. It's, you know, looking past the headline. Did you have any uh, thoughts or takeaways about this? Yeah. So on the TikTok API, uh, you, you brought up two classes of issues. On the technical side, we do have a bunch of recommendations. You can go to io.stanford.edu to read the post. Like you said, it doesn't cover the front page most people see, and that is going to be an issue. Now, how do you do the For You page in an API is a tough one, but we could at least do is have more statistics available about how it's showing up in For You, and then have the ability to do things to see top 50, top 100, top 1,000. So that would be a more, you know, crowd tangle like features in this API instead of like you're saying, just being able to stream searches. On the legal side, I I don't think the agreement is going to be signable by most uh, researchers at this point because of the the idea that people get to, that TikTok gets to republish anything that you create, that sounds like boilerplate to me. It is totally incompatible with any agreement that you sign with any of the non-open access journals. And so you're just not going to have academics say, I can't publish in science or nature if I if I use this API. But I expect that they don't actually care that much about that and that that will be removed. The 15-day thing is probably due to privacy rules. Um, a bunch of the API agreements say that you have 15 days, 30 days, and most of that has to do with GDPR and other privacy laws that require data to be deleted when it is deleted upstream. And so the only way that the company can force you to comply with upstream deletion uh, would be to have a limit on how many days that you hold all of your data. Okay. So uh, is your do you have a prediction? Is, some really, is this going to produce a really useful research? Is this something that you are still excited about despite these limitations or not so much? So, I mean, I'm excited that it's coming out. I think, again, they're going to have to change the agreement before anybody uses it. I, I see that as definitely possible. You know, I hope that this is just MVP and they keep iterating. But the fact that they're doing it is good because, you know, thanks to a bunch of stuff at Twitter, you know, Twitter is going the opposite way on transparency. And my fear was that that would have a a serious signaling effect for TikTok and and other, you know, more emergent platforms uh, on transparency. Um, And so the fact that they're continuing on this is good. There does need to be significant changes if you want this to in any way be seen as mitigating the risk that people see from All right, so then let's head over to our Twitter corner and do a speed run through that. 
Okay, so in just the last two weeks since we spoke, some of the highlights are that Twitter hasn't actually turned off its API after threatening to, despite an immense amount of enthusiasm for its new API model, which uh, is a fantastic euphemism. We also found out that Musk... <laughs> I mean, a lot of people yeah, are exactly. talking about it, so that is... <laughs> That's a, the, the, the tweets about the API are off the charts, um, so they must be loving it. This is that, yeah, Musk's theory yeah. of popularity. <laughs> no such thing as bad PR. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it explains a lot, really. And meanwhile, Musk boosted his own tweets times a thousand following the Super Bowl when his tweet, which he then deleted, had lower engagement than President Joe Biden's, uh, which is just amazing. Uh, I hope he takes that one to therapy. And then um, in what will shock everyone, I'm sure, uh, but we, we spoke previously about how the Taliban were buying verification now that it's paid on Twitter. Turns out that Russian government information operations, people are buying it as well, according to the Washington Post. Uh, a report there. And also it, Twitter is now charging for SMS two-factor authentication. I think that was the highlights from the last two weeks. It's, it's been a fun one. <laughs> Quick takes on that, Alex. <laughs> okay. So like the Musk, it's just like you have hear all this high-minded stuff and then he just decides the president of the United States had more reach than I did, which is not shocking for pretty much anybody. And so, you know, the him completely flooding everybody's timelines with his tweets, even if you weren't subscribed to him, is just perfect, right? Like, it's just the encapsulation of this whole thing that the guy's having like a midlife crisis that includes a, the need for massive dopamine hits for people to pay attention to him all the time. And that, you know, you can explain almost all of his his decisions from that and not based upon some kind of actual master plan. Yeah, that, that's oh, yeah, best. Yeah, I, I have this fantasy, you know, there was this Supreme Court case last week Gonzalez v. Google about whether a platform loses its immunity, Section 230 immunity, if it amplifies content on its platform. And I have this fantasy that the court, you know, and there was all this sort of discussion about where is the line between, you know, targeted recommendations or when does the platform really take responsibility? And I'm hoping that the court, you know, comes out and be like, well, that's a mess. We're not touching all of that. But we do know that if you boost the CEO's tweet uh, a thousand times more than any other user, then uh, you lose Section 230 immunity for that for that content. So that's uh, the, the Elon Musk rule uh, in, in Gonzalez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So the other one that's like really security focused is the charging for SMS two factor, right? So this one's actually pretty complicated. I think people had a bunch of simplistic takes. SMS two factor is not great from a security perspective. There have been a history of people having their two factor tokens stolen through their phone numbers being stolen. Now, that is extremely rare in a situation like a Twitter that is mostly for stealing things like Bitcoin, right? And for really kind of high-end corporate apps and stuff, where it makes sense for an attacker to spend a bunch of time, you know, trying to talk to an AT&T service rep to get your phone number swung over to a different phone. And so the, the security issues with SMS two-factor for Twitter, I think, are pretty low. It costs a lot of money, right? Like, you, you have to pay Twilio a lot of money because effectively SMS is still, like, this bizarre system where you have to do a kickback to whoever delivers it. I saw somebody did a calculation and the cost of delivering an SMS is something like twice the cost of getting data down from the Hubble Space oh Telescope, <laughs> right? On a per byte basis. Yes. Right. So like it is cheaper for NASA to run like the deep space relay network than it is for, you know, apparently AT&T and everybody else to deliver SMS. So it is a significant cost to Twitter. The downside, you know, moving off of SMS is the right long-term move. 
the problem is, is they're not doing like a slow movie here and they're not, I think, appropriately prompting people to move on to different kinds of two factor. They're just doing it immediately. And so you're going to have like single digit millions of accounts that are using SMS two factor, not a different two factor, all of a sudden be unprotected. And so attackers who have done takeover attacks in the past who have done credential stuffing and have been stopped by SMS two-factor, if they are keeping good logs the day that Twitter implements this, they should then go rerun all of those credential stuffing attacks. And so you will see a bunch of Twitter account takeovers at that moment, and we should see a spike in spam and some other bad behavior. Oh, great. Well, the question will be whether we notice the difference uh, given the state of the platform at the moment. Okay. In Other news of platforms watching Twitter and going, hmm, that looks interesting. Uh, Facebook has started offering paid verification for Instagram and Facebook, $11.99 per month on the web and $14.99 on mobile, uh, saying that you can pay and get the verified badge, some increased visibility on the platforms and prioritized customer support, starting with everyone's favorite little uh, Petri dish, Australia and New Zealand, to check out how that uh, works down there. I don't really have any uh, interesting or uh, takes on, on this one, people are making a big fuss about it, going, how can you do this meta after seeing how spectacularly wrong it went on Twitter? Do you have any thoughts? I actually think it's a good thing because there's a couple of things here. One, very few people were, were verified on Facebook, right? So Facebook's verification has always been very opaque and limited to folks of, a, you know, they had a pretty high bar, a much higher bar than old Twitter on who got verified. It costs a lot of money to do real name verification, right? Like somebody has to upload their ID, you have to do ID matching. Facebook has some cost advantages here because Facebook actually has already spent hundreds of millions of dollars to purchase a company that does ML identification of IDs, right? That will look at a photo of a person in the photo of their ID and try to determine whether the ID is fake or not. But it does cost a decent amount of money. And you know, I think it's actually a good thing because it's going to greatly increase the number of people who are verified and it's a much more transparent process. The difference here between what Meta is doing and what Twitter did is they're not there's no announcement that they're lowering the standard, right? So if they're still doing the same verification steps, then that's great. The The real problem I had with Twitter charging for it is not that they're charging, which I think is okay. It is that they trained everybody as to what a blue check mark means. And then all of a sudden you could just pay to get the blue check mark and it didn't mean anything anymore. And the trustworthiness doesn't exist there. And they allow people to go up, create accounts as other people, and you don't get taken down until that gets noticed and, and, reported, which causes huge problems. And so uh, it to me, it's not the charging, it is the verification that doesn't actually have any verification behind it. So as long as Meta does not lower the standard of how much verification they're doing, I think it's actually a good Okay. Thing. And in further, what Elon Musk does makes Meta look good, uh, and Musk being Zuckerberg's best friend these days, Meta has announced a program that Facebook and Instagram will be participating in Take It Down, which is a platform run by NICMIC, so the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, where people can submit nude, partially nude, or sexually explicit images or videos taken of them when they were under 18 and they will be given a digital fingerprint they'll be hashed and then participating platforms can check uploads to their platform against this database this platform run by Nick Mick and have these images removed this sounds like a, a great thing um, I think it's uh, it's excellent Pornhub is also participating which is another fantastic thing to see any yeah. any thoughts on that 
No, I think it's great. It it builds on the work that started while I was there on NCII for adults, where adults could, you know, they, they, they ran a number of tests and then really rolled out a big program where adults can upload images. The problem for children is it is illegal for Meta to hold on to illegal images of children. NCMEC is the only organization could do it. So I, I think this is a great opportunity where it looks like I expect Facebook did most of the technical stuff, but that NCMEC is hosting it and, and providing kind of the legal cover. Um, it's good to see Pornhub. Pornhub has a real NCII problem, as does all the other kind of porn streaming sites. So I hope that this is provided to them in a way that they can do it. The, the challenge those companies are going to have is doing this kind of matching on video is computationally way, way more expensive. And if a Facebook or Google can afford it, but for some of these porn sites, you know, whether or not they'll be able to computationally handle it will be interesting on the actual videos. So I think that's great. The interesting legal case here is... It is not, there has not been a change in the law around self generated content to give Nick Mick cannot like bless you as not, you know, trafficking in child pornography if you are creating your own images, right? And so, you know, it has become much less likely that kids get prosecuted in these situations where they have taken images themselves and those images are, you know, if they send it to one person, but then that person forwards it on, you know, the original victim being prosecuted, that is much more rare, but technically it's still a crime. And I've heard some pretty bad stories about that. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see how Nick, Mick and Meta kind of navigate trying to provide legal protection to kids who use this, because in theory, if you have like a hyper-conservative local DA who wants to punish anybody who ever sent an, an, a nude image, this could create an opening wow. for them. Okay. Well, that's terrifying. And I, I haven't seen any reporting about that specific aspect of it. So yeah, that will be interesting to see. Yeah, this is a question. Uh, we have an event coming up that uh, Nick Mix general counsel is going to be at, and I'm definitely going to ask her this. Uh, is like, how do you see it? I think, you know, I think part of the question is, is does Nick Mick do a report? Let's say you upload your image to this. And does it go into the same pipeline as the cyber tip line where Nick Mick now will send a report to local law enforcement? Because that's, you know, an interesting question. I expect that they're not doing that. But are they legally allowed not to do that? It's just a very complicated situation that I I think will probably have to get fixed at, at, at the federal level itself. Okay, great. Well, I'm sure they'll get right on that, Alex, and, and clean up that law uh, next session of Congress. No worries. Yeah. Okay, but let's switch over then to a government or uh, lawmakers that do actually pass laws. Um, so let's go over to Europe. News coming out of Europe this week is uh, TikTok is now banned on European Commission devices following the federal ban and a bunch of states over here. I don't know if you have any further thoughts on that, Alex, except that it does seem to be a real snowball effect here um, with these bans coming into place uh, all over the place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, TikTok is still going and briefing people on Project Texas. They they seem to have not changed kind of their path here. I think, the, you know, there's not a good indication of whether or not that's going to work with CFIUS. But even if it doesn't, work, if, even if it does work with CFIUS, it's clear that the EU is going to have their say here. Too. And meanwhile, last week was the reporting deadline for companies to report on how many European users they had and whether uh, if they had over 45 million European users and they would qualify as a, what I like to call VLOP, but I hear many of the people in the know are calling VLOPs, which is very large online platform under the EU Digital Services Act. And if you are a VLOP or a VLOP, you're going to have to comply with the most stringent requirements under the DSA, which includes a lot of 
risk assessment reporting, uh, independent auditing, uh, access to data, things like that. And so many of the obvious usual suspects fall in there. So, you know, you have your Facebook, your Instagram, your YouTube, obviously. But also in that category is TikTok and Twitter and Pinterest. Not in that category are platforms like Snapchat, Roblox and Spotify, for example. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, how these platforms go once they start having to comply in the coming months. Yeah, I'm looking forward that we're going to be able to have a section about the failures of DSA reporting called belly flops. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, we will need to line up a sound effect for that one. But uh, yeah, it, it'll be uh, it'll be informative at least. Meanwhile, just something to note, passing of the torch, um, Susan Wojcicki has announced that she's stepping down as YouTube CEO now. I took no! this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I personally took this very hard because as someone that has had a years-long campaign uh, to get Susan Wojcicki to testify on the Hill because she was somehow managed to avoid all the CEO hearings that have happened over the past few years. Um, This is a massive blow to that campaign and it's not looking good at this stage. But those those are my sophisticated thoughts on on this uh, transition. I don't know if you have anything else. (laughs) I know, I guess. Uh, Do do we know who's taking over for her uh, yet? Uh, Yeah, Neil Mohan. Yeah. Neil Mohan. Yeah. So are, are you going to have a Neil Mohan to the hill? I mean, who, one, who would have predicted that, that Elon Musk would have beaten Susan to the hill representing a vlog, yeah, right? Like that's a, right. A, actual, a speech platform, which is almost certain to happen. Yeah. I mean, it is only a matter of time. I, you know, I think she, I mean, congratulations to her. She, uh, she outlasted the might of my occasional tweets expressing angst about this. Um, so so just from like a, a capital, you know, she has one of the most impressive runs of of anybody in this kind of position, right? That like she massively grew YouTube. She competed very aggressively and effectively against Meta and other companies. While you and I have issues with YouTube from a content and trust and safety perspective, you can't deny her success here. And, you know, like quitting while you're ahead, I think that's actually a great thing. She has, uh, you know, I think a, a quite a large family. I've, I've met some of them. Uh, and I think she's deciding that she's just going to enjoy her life, which is, that's, I just like to see that. I mean, I think that there's way too many people who just decide that these that you're going to work past the first billion and ignore everything else. Uh, like, you know, say you have 13 kids and ignore them and instead have a midlife crisis of buying companies just to throw out a, a possible theoretical yeah. situation. <laughs> well, well, I'm sure um, she will regret not having the pleasure of finding out how to comply with the, the DSA and missing out on that great adventure. But I, I wish her all the best. And then finally, in the legal corner, um, so just because we did a podcast on this a couple of months back with Professor Eugene Volokh, who had challenged the New York hateful conduct law, which was passed in the aftermath of the Buffalo Massacre, where the uh, New York State was requiring platforms to publish a hateful conduct policy that said what they were going to do with what the state defined as hateful conduct and have a complaints mechanism. Uh, So Eugene Volokh and co-plaintiffs, which included the platform Rumble, challenged this law as a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, and compelled speech. Uh, in, in many ways, this law kind of looked like the transparency mandates under the Texas and Florida laws, which are headed to the Supreme Court next term, most likely. Um, so we got the uh, the ruling on the preliminary injunction on that last week, and the court has enjoined the law, saying that you know uh, there's a, a substantial likelihood of success, and so that law will not come into effect while the court resolves the case on the merits. So, you know, if you're interested in more detail on that, there's a podcast with uh, Professor Volokh um, a couple of months back. 
Yeah, thank you. Excellent. And then, of course, you know, it was Supreme Court's Tech Law Super Bowl this week. We don't need to discuss Gonzalez and Tumna here anymore. But in case you don't know how podcasts work and haven't actually subscribed to this one and so have, have somehow missed the two episodes that I did with Supreme Court correspondent uh, Daphne Keller on those hearings, um, you can go back in the feed and, and listen to those. We had some a, a good chat about uh, the oral hearings that happened last week. I don't know if you, you know, you listen to them live uh, in in Japan while you were on holiday, Alex. Uh, uh, <laughs> somehow I missed it. I, I listened to, to your coverage and that was good enough. Do you think like on a meta issue, is this uh, would this be an argument that you would have liked video for? Is this a situation in which we should have uh, C-SPAN in the courtroom? In I mean, in court? general, I would like to say yes, but I got to say the plaintiff's lawyer on Tuesday was so bad that I was already like cowering under the desk and wanting to jump into a hole of, yeah. out of embarrassment for him that I think it would have been even worse if there were video. Like it was... Uh, a shockingly bad performance and I was already finding it somewhat hard uh, to listen to. I'm not someone that deals well with someone else being embarrassed or, you know, myself being embarrassed. And so uh, so in this particular case, I was glad to be to be spared that. But yes, uh, in general, I, I can't understand why why we wouldn't have videos. Um, <laughs> there's, for all the talk of transparency and the importance of, uh, uh, of transparency, A, we don't have video in the courtroom. It's, the, you know, it's only recently since the pandemic that we've had these audio recordings. And uh, Daphne was saying, you know, if you go into the courtroom and you, you are told that you'll be locked up if you, uh, if you say anything un- unruly. So uh, it's uh, free speech uh, for all in that context. Anything else before we wrap up for the week? <laughs> No, I'm looking forward to whatever crazy stuff happens yeah, next week. I'm glad to be back. Excellent. Uh, well, I hope you uh, recover from your jet lag and uh, look forward to chatting next week, but not seeing each other because that is not what happens in the audio format. This has been your moderated content <laughs> weekly update. This show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode wouldn't have been possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst at the Stanford Internet observatory and it is produced by the wonderful brian pelletier special thanks also to justin Fu and rob huff